Welcome to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Coming up, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker from Florence, Larry Hott. His new documentary, The Niagara Movement, The Early Battle for Civil Rights, comes to PBS this fall, but we'll get a preview of a preview of the documentary screening at the Northampton Center for the Arts this weekend as we talk with Larry and two of the historians from the film, Stephen R. Fox and Alden Morris. And later in the show, we'll talk with digital accessibility strategist Amr Shivaji Kumar about Global Accessibility Awareness Day, which is tomorrow and how that affects all of us. But first... Hi! Emily Brewster, resident wordster (laughs) from Merriam-Webster. First, before we get into the sneaky word we're going to talk about today, I want to just give some... Applause to whomever is running the Merriam-Webster Twitter account lately. It has been, as the kids say, fire. I loved Mother's Day where it said, Mother's Day has the apostrophe before the S. So celebrate as many mothers as you'd like, but do so one at a time to make each extra special. And then May 15th, if you are still anti-irregardless, you can feel free to continue writing us angry letters or yell at us on Twitter whenever you hear it. It's our hope that the explanation of why we entered this word in our dictionary will mollify you. And then in all caps from two days before, it said, irregardless has been around since 1795. Its inclusion (laughs) in the dictionary is not a sign of the English language falling to pieces or proof of the educational system failing, nor is it the work of cursed millennials. It just means a lot of people use it to mean regardless. (laughs) And so I've been having a great laugh from Merriam-Webster's Twitter account. Do you happen to know offhand, Emily Brewster, who is the person responsible? I do. I do. His name is John Sabine, S-A-B-I-N-E, and he is great. He is uh, pretty new, and we're very happy to have him. Kudos to John Sabine. (laughs) Emily Brewster, though, we're going to talk about another controversial word of sorts, not as controversial as last week's, sneak. Yeah, well, and sneak itself isn't so controversial, but I am curious about what you all do when you want to talk about sneaking in the past tense. Like today, I I will sneak some cookies. Yesterday, I... I would probably say snuck, snuck. but then I would second guess myself and be like, or is it sneaked? Because I would know. It's like swing. I always forget about swing, too. Is it I swang? No, but... Yes. What would you do, Khalees? Same thing? Yeah. Snuck is is my first impulse. And then after that, sneaked. I snuck past the security guards at the Taylor Swift concert. I always have said snuck. And I thought that snuck was the standard until I started doing dictionary work. And then I found out that actually snuck is, is pretty new and sneaked is the older past tense form and that snuck has only recently become really widespread in its use. And it's a weird thing because it really bucks a trend in how verbs get conjugated. There are two different kinds of verbs. It, when we're talking about, about um, verb forms for like conjugating them, there are two different kinds. There are weak verbs and strong verbs. The weak verbs follow the rules by using S, E, D, and I, N, G, right? Like I play, I played, I was playing, right? That's, yes. that's all, it's all plain and simple. But strong verbs are verbs that um, they, they want nothing to do with following rules at all. So you take a <laughs> word like to be, right? Uh-huh. It's to be, I am, it was, it has been, 
Like, what is up with that? What makes that strong? Isn't the strength in our togetherness? Haven't we learned our lesson that no, if you're the like a rogue? In the individuality of its You're parts. a rogue yeah. actor going out and breaking all the rules and social norms. And he's a weak person. By being weak, unlike other people that you watch, uh, he's a weak person. Maybe you're the I weak know, it, one. I it's, know. It's strong like a strong-willed <laughs> child. This is the strength of a verb. A strong verb is strong like my six-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> like, gonna do what she wants to do. And that's how strong verbs are. So does that make sneak a strong verb? Because it doesn't... No, oh, it makes it weak because it does what it makes, it's supposed to do, right? But it became a strong verb. Yeah, it's like in this in this weird it's been working um, out. process of increasingly gaining strength. It's getting stronger. <laughs> I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. But English used to have, so both weak and strong verbs date back to Old English. They are both as old as the language itself. But we used to have many, many more strong verbs. And over the years, over the millennia, millennium, we have a lot of, a lot of verbs that used to be strong have gone to be weak. They have kind of normalized their, their conjugations. But sneak is doing this weird thing that's that's bucking that trend. Everything is supposed to be going to this E-D-I-N-G, just ho-hum, playing nicely with all the different forms that you're supposed to have, being very cooperative. And then sneak has just snuck in this weird strong verb form. I see what you did there. <laughs> now, the word sneak also is not very old. Well, I mean, it dates to the 1500s. And it wasn't until the 1800s that snuck started showing up and it started showing up in the United States. This is not, it's not used in, in British English. Of course um, not. Or, I mean, My maybe monocle. it is now, but it, yeah, we, we, we did this to it, right? It's our, <laughs> it's our, uh, our fault. And uh, nobody really knows. I mean, the other thing about it that's curious to me is that it doesn't follow any particular pattern. For the most part, the only strong verbs that we have are the verbs that are really common. So, you know, like uh, do, did, done, right? Those words maintained their strong conjugations because they were so common that they couldn't really fall out of use, that they couldn't get normalized enough. They're in every sentence. These, like the word be, the word do, the word have, they're in every sentence, the word get. And so those words maintained their weird forms, their forms that don't follow a pattern because speakers used them so much that they were just like consistently used. People consistently learned them. Now I'm thinking of like other words that are, are strong words. When does brought come about? Is that the original past tense of bring? Uh, no, I believe that it was brought. I'm going to look that up. That is I also, I think, a um, very much a strong verb. It's brang. That brought, sounds like something bringing. that Americans did to the word. Yeah. I'm about to <laughs> do it We took it out back and we added an A and we said, you'll take this vowel. I brang it out well, back and I showed it. it what's what. It's funny when like kids do this sometimes. They'll yeah. take a word like bring and make it brang, probably because they are thinking of like ring, rang. There is a pattern that you can find. Mm -hmm. I also think about the word drive and drove, dive, dove. Mm -hmm. This is, there's been a similar thing going on there. I think dive, dove was the original, but drive, drived was original and then drove. I think that's how it was. America is making verbs stronger. Come on, what's more American sounding <laughs> than doing that? Well, other other language um, varieties, spin. other spin, than I American think is more English. Spam. You know, uh, yeah, it's we we just because we did it to sneak doesn't mean that we're the only ones doing it in general. Okay. My daughter still says "taughten" instead of like "taught." 
Oh, yeah. She puts en on a lot of words, which is a really old English form. And she adds it on to verbs, you know, for reasons I can't, I can't really discern. As a dictionary <laughs> editor mother, are you mortified when that happens? Oh, no, I'm just I happy love that it. she's bringing it back. Yeah. <laughs> what if somebody no. hears her say "totten"? She'll think I, I tottened her wrong. I, I kind of rue the day when she will stop doing it. Yeah, I it's think so it's cute. Totally charming. I know. You write all these down because you'll forget them, but they're so cute. I wonder if we moved to snuck because it is automatopoetic in the same way that sneak is. Say more. Well, sneak sounds like you're slinking around underneath something trying to get by somewhere. And I feel like snuck does kind of the same thing where you still sound like you're slinking around trying to get by as opposed to sneaked, which kind of puts an end to that. Like it doesn't quite sound as shifty as snuck. Totally. I, I think, yeah, I, I like that theory. Also, the the at the end of sneaked, right? Like if you're really going to enunciate it, it's very, it's very intrusive. But it, there's no other, like I can't think of any other word that follows that pattern. So when we see right. things like drive to drove, we can see that there are other words that do the same kind of thing. But I've tried to think of other words that have that eek ending where it where it changes to uck. And I, I don't know, like it's not leak luck. It's not peak puck. Feek? No. <laughs> oh, no, wait. It's a, yeah, no, there, it's not, it's not, it's not there. I just think it's yeah. a it's a funny one. And it's interesting to me that we are all like basically the same same generation and we all say snuck. Yep. I wonder what our listeners say and how many of our listeners say sneaked and how many say snuck. And also how like how problematic is snuck to some people or some people like no snuck sounds so wrong and completely like, it sounds like a child's mistake. You better be like, careful or Merriam Webster's going to all caps yell at you on Twitter. <laughs> Um, and wouldn't that just be the highlight of your day? Oh my God, that would be <laughs> so much fun. I want to be yelled at by the dictionary on but, Twitter. But do tell yeah, us. Yeah, that's John's job. I don't actually have to do that. There are so many other much, much fiercer fights you could get into. Wouldn't you yeah. rather just have your language corrected? We do want to know, though, if you say snuck. So you can text us, 1-800-639-9120, and tell us if you sneaked or if you snuck or if you had a snack or anything like that. Speaking of sneak, <laughs> yes. snack, snuck... Another. I'm going to shout out Merriam-Webster's Twitter account again. They, uh, on May 10th, were like, hey, ding-dongs, let's have a chit-chat about ablut reduplication. If you have three words, the order usually goes I-A-O, tic-tac-toe. There are only two words. I is the first, and the second is either A or O, click-clack, king or kong, or like bing-bong, criss-cross, pitter-patter. And then they topped it off with yin-yang and Christopher Cross, which I just thought <laughs> was a brilliant last touch to the whole thing. Tell me you're going to put sailing in right here. It takes me away. So yeah, follow Merriam-Webster so on Twitter. It's I, so much yeah. fun. I heard that song in a dream. <laughs> Played by a man named Christopher Cross. You must take that name and sing to the world. I have to die now. Snick, snack, snuck. It's the only order it can go in. Well, thank you, Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster. <laughs> you are so welcome. Be careful with all your sneaking. We'll do. Uh, we'll do our best, but it's really hard around here. There's so many chords to trip on. Yeah. <laughs> Got a pressing linguistic question for the word nerd? Email us to, at thefab413 at nepm.org or text 1-800-639-9120. I can't stop laughing at Yarok.
I love Yacht Rock. Later in the show, we'll talk with digital accessibility strategist Amrit Shivaji Kumar about Global Accessibility Awareness Day, which is tomorrow. And up next, have you ever heard of the Niagara Movement? We'll learn about it as we talk with filmmaker Larry Hott from Florence, whose new PBS Plus documentary is called The Niagara Movement. And we'll talk with two of the historians featured in the documentary, Stephen R. Fox and Alden Morris. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Niagara Movement was one of the first organizations, one of the first movements that was explicitly centered around an unequivocal demand for African-American civil rights and full inclusion into the American body politic. W.E.B. Du Bois and William Monroe Trotter hoped to unleash a mighty current of protest. But the foremost African-American leader saw things very differently and for a very good reason. Booker T. Washington knows the terrorism of the South. He knows that if you got out of line in any kind of way, you're gonna be lynched. Booker T. Washington was a product of the South. He was born a slave in 1856, was raised in slavery in Virginia. He experienced struggling and clawing and scrapping to become educated. He realized within his bones, what it took to survive in the South. The Niagara Movement, The Early Battle for Civil Rights, is a new documentary set to air on PBS nationally this fall. The Northampton premiere of the film will happen twice this Saturday at the Northampton Center for the Arts at 33 Holly. Two free screenings Saturday at 4 and again at 7. Joining us here live in the Fabulous 413 is the Florence-based director of the documentary Lawrence Larry Hott, a co-founding partner of Florentine Films who has produced and directed documentary films for PBS and others. He's been twice nominated for an Academy Award and received a Peabody Award and an Emmy. And he's a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, so if you thank the Academy when you get an Oscar, you're thanking Larry. Also joining us is Alden Morris, Leon Forrest Professor of Sociology and African American Studies in the Weinberg College of the Arts and Sciences at Northwestern University, such a mouthful, an award-winning scholar and author, and the 2021 president of the American Sociological Association. Thank you both so much for joining us here. I think, Larry, I've known you for a good long time now, and I'm a big fan of your work. How did this story, which you know, as somebody who is relatively well-versed in history uh, and had never heard of the Niagara Movement, how did this story come across your radar and get you involved in making a film about it? I've been making films with the Buffalo PBS station for 20 years. And they called me and they said, are you interested in doing a film on the Niagara Movement? Now, I've done four films that involve Niagara Falls. And I was sick of Niagara Falls. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you you put Niagara Falls into the search engine on my computer, too many files come up. Yeah, I always think of the Three Stooges segment, but we won't get there right now. We use that clip, too. Slowly slowly I turn. That's what I felt like. Oh, no, no, not again. But then I found out that this is a major inflection point in American history. Very few people know about it. It's chapters in a lot of books. There's very few books about it. Uh, It's a period in time when African Americans were suffering terribly from lynchings and other depredations, but when there was a controversy, a conflict between three of the leaders, or among the leaders, really, because W.E.B. Du Bois, who comes out of Great Barrington, Western Massachusetts, we know him well, there's a library and a center named after him, and then uh, William William Monroe Trotter out of Boston, uh, these basically very well-educated, both went to Harvard, these men, oppose the policies, the philosophy 
of Booker T. Washington, who's known as the Wizard of Tuskegee, who in 1895 made this amazing speech, which was dubbed the Atlantic Compromise, that everybody at the time agreed with him, saying blacks should take a back seat, should not make waves, should get educated in the trades. And even W.E.B. Du Bois at the time went along with him. But then the number of lynchings kept increasing, the discrimination, uh, the lack of, uh, of equality just increased and increased. And it was very hard for people, particularly in the North, to say, what are we doing here? And the people in the no South, like Booker T. Washington, were saying, wait a second, you don't live with the lynchings day to day like we do here in Alabama. And hence this big battle over what was the direction of the civil rights movement. Well, before we get uh, more with our guest, Director Larry Hott, and our special guest, the author and professor Alden Morris, let's hear a clip about that Atlanta Compromise that you mentioned, Larry, that features a UMass professor, uh, Amilcar Shabazz. This is perhaps the first time in the South that you would have on the speaker dais with white people a person of African descent. And he gets his moment to speak. He had a way of coming out on the stage and putting his hands in his pockets and just standing there motionless and quiet for a while. And this had a way of quieting the audience. And once he had them in his hand, he held them in his hand. He was a brilliant orator. He offered a solution to one of the most vexing problems of the day, the so-called race question or the Negro problem. The masses of us are to live by the production of our hands. We shall prosper as we learn to dignify and glorify common labor. It is at the bottom of life we should begin, and not the top. Booker T. Washington. What really Washington wanted was financial well-being for black people. He was promoting his movement in a way that was not offensive to white people. He's trying to figure out a way, how do we survive and, and yet make progress? African-Americans would stay in their place, that they would be content with their status as workers and not challenge the racial status quo. When white people and white leaders hear that, they are like, oh my God, that's it. That is a clip from Larry Hott's forthcoming PBS film, The Niagara Movement. It'll be screened twice in Northampton this weekend at the Northampton Center for the Arts. and It'll be on PBS in the fall. We're also joined by the scholar who's featured in this film, Alden Morris, who is a professor of sociology and African-American studies at Northwestern University. Alden, this part of history, both Larry and I have said, is not something that is as well known. This conflict between these uh, icons of the civil rights movement, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. Why do you think this is a chapter in elementary school that uh, some <laughs> Colise knows everything, as we all know. We'll just interview her about the thing. But why is this something that uh, is often lost to history and in including um, Trotter, who is not is held as highly, perhaps, is not as well known as those two other names, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois? Well, I think that what is important is that this particular film mm. uh, on the Niagara movement We're, is important. Are, is it because us that can't hear him, the... or is it? Oh, wait a minute. Let me see. Talk for me again there, Alden. Alden? Hello? Oh, there, there we go. go. We're Yes. Excellent. All right, Thank you. all right. 
Uh, I was saying that this film on the Niagara movement is important because it tells the story of an, an important historical development that has been forgotten and ignored. It tells the story of the 1905 Niagara movement, which only lasted for about five years, but its importance cannot be counted by years. We uh, have heard all about the modern civil rights movement it's historic components, that is the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott, the vicious confrontation in Birmingham in 1963 with the police dogs and the water hoses, or the Selma to Montgomery march. Um, and we've also heard about the NAACP. But what's important is that the, that the Niagara movement was the historical forerunner to all of these important events in the civil rights movement. So the Niagara movement was the first national civil rights movement. It pioneered the protest approach as well as the legal approach. The legal approach culminated with the Brown versus Board decision in 1954, but the Niagara movement has already experimented with that kind of approach. They know another thing that's very important, I think, about the Niagara movement um, and this film is that it lifted the militant philosophy of W.B. Du Bois and Monroe Trotter for all the witness to witness. And also, as was mentioned earlier, it, 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 it culminated in this historic disagreement between uh, Booker T. Washington and the Niagara Movement, uh, because Booker T. Washington felt that uh, Black people should get their liberation by engaging in uh, industrial labor. So then what I would uh, say, and I think it'd be obvious in the film, is that without the Niagara movement, it is possible that there would not have been a modern civil rights movement. At least that movement would have unfolded very differently without the model of the Niagara movement. So in terms of this film, I think it's past time for the Niagara movement to become part of our historical imagination. Uh, my hope is that, and I'm sure the filmmakers' hope is that the film will make it possible for that historical imagination, that is, of the Niagara movement to take root and to endure. I think it's rather puzzling that it has been uh, forgotten. I don't know exactly the major reasons why it's been forgotten. I suppose it was just foreshadowed by the events of the modern civil rights movement. Uh, but once again, its historical importance just cannot be uh, understated. Do you think that the conflict between the Niagara movement and the ideology of Booker T. Washington kind of mimics the debate around respectability politics today? Alden? Yes. <laughs> um, yes, I would say that that's probably true. Uh, but the, the situation was really dire. Right at the turn of the 20th century. It was whether black people were going to go back to a new form of slavery. And it was about Booker T. Washington having worked out a way for black people to get liberated from his point of view. And so what, what you then had is W.B. Du Bois and Monroe Trotter saying, this approach of Booker T. Washington is not going to work. We've got to agitate. We got to protest. We got to let the world know we want to be full citizens and so forth. So I think it's larger than a debate about respectability politics. It had a lot to do with what 
what was going to happen with the whole race question at the turn of the 20th century. And as we heard in the clip, it seemed like white folks were really excited about the Booker T. Washington idea that accommodation would be where this uh, movement begins and that W.E.B. Du Bois and Trotter um, and the Niagara movement decide that this is that wouldn't be fast enough. It was more than excited. Andrew Carnegie gave what would now be the equivalent of many millions of dollars to Booker T. Washington, not only to support the Tuskegee Institute, but to support him personally. He had a lot of power behind him. And one of the things we get into in the film is the black press. There are at least 300 black newspapers at the time before there was the internet or telephone. And this is where word of mouth started, with the papers and then it spread from there. And Booker T. controlled that press, uh, except for The Guardian, which is a newspaper that William Monroe Trotter started in Boston. And there was vitriol dripping from the pages of those papers on the editorial pages between those two people. And it actually resulted in a, in a small riot in, in Boston in 1903, which is something that we feature in the film. I don't know if you have it yeah. queued up, but we could uh, we could pl- uh, play a little bit. It's a short section. Well, let's, before we take a break, hear a clip from the Niagara Movement. Larry Hott is the director of the film. It'll air on PBS in the fall. There'll be a special screening in Northampton this weekend, two of them at the Northampton Center for the Arts. We're also joined by Professor Alden Morris. But let's hear a clip about uh, the Boston riot, which is in some ways the beginning of the end for Booker T. Washington's ideology. And it was a riot more like a riot that you laugh at. (laughs) (laughs) A laugh riot. riot. Yes, it was a laugh riot in many ways. Let's hear that clip. Booker T. Washington comes to the city of Boston. When Washington shows up for his meeting at the Columbus Avenue AME Church, Trotter shows up with his supporters. And they begin to shout down Booker T. Washington. Trotter's supporters throw cayenne pepper on the dais. People start sneezing. Coughing. William Monroe Trotter stood on the pews shouting at Booker T. Washington. The church is exploding into um, arguments. Jeers, hisses. Yelling back and forth. Fistfights broke out. It becomes a, a melee. The cops arrive. William Monroe Trotter's sister in the bedlam even stabs a police officer with a hairpin. She is taken away. William Monroe Trotter is ultimately arrested, sentenced to 30 days uh, in jail. And the Boston riot symbolizes the vociferous opposition to Booker T. Washington that existed certainly in Boston, but was beginning to spread throughout the country as well. If you're not familiar with the Niagara Movement, this is going to be a great way for you to learn about it. You have an opportunity this Saturday in Northampton, two opportunities at four and at seven at the Northampton Center for the Arts. The Niagara Movement grows into eventually something that I'm sure you're all familiar with, and we will hear a little bit more about that after a break. We are speaking with the director of the Niagara Movement, the early battle for civil rights, Florence-based filmmaker, Emmy Award winner Larry Hott, as well as the Leon Forrest Professor of Sociology and African-American Studies at Northwestern University, Alden Morris will be right back on The Fabulous 413. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We're here with filmmaker Larry Hott from Florence, who's got a new documentary. They pulled him out of retirement, I should say. Fourth to, time. <laughs> to make this documentary. The He's trying to re- retire from Niagara Falls. <laughs> yes, slowly I turned back to filmmaking. <laughs> 
the Niagara Movement, the early battle for civil rights. We are also joined by one of the, for lack of a better way to describe it, talking heads in the movie, Alden Morris, who is a sociology professor at Northwestern University. You have an opportunity before everybody in the world gets to see it on PBS this fall to see it in the fabulous 413 in Northampton at 33 Holly this Saturday. So I want to talk about the importance of education in both camps because they're both like it is one of their points in both ideologies. But there's kind of that Mason-Dixon divide between the ways that they think about what education is really made up of and what it does. And I think like part of that is because you see Trotter's Trotter and Du Bois are both Harvard educated and they have a much more genteel, very northern approach to it. And Booker T. Washington is looking at it in in trade. And in no small part, at least I think that's part of um, because of how Tuskegee came about. Like they built that from the ground up with their hands, learning as they went is very much a FUBU thing. Um, for us, by us. And that's an interesting divide when they both agree that we as community needed to have access to learning. So if if anybody would like to talk about... <laughs> well, I'd like to throw this, I'd like to throw, throw this to Alden uh, because I've thought about this in, in those ways too. Um, but Booker T. Washington was very hard for us to deal with in the film because we had to be nuanced. We learned that in our test screenings that we couldn't, we couldn't make him the devil. He, he was dealing with something different in Alabama. And also he was extremely successful. So I want to I ask Alden, what, how does your view of the, of the class differences between Booker T. Washington and Du Bois and Trotter. Uh, what is your view of how different they were? Well, they were very different. Um, I'm not sure I would uh, call it class differences. They certainly had a different kind of education. Um, Booker T. Washington having been educated at Hampton um, and taught uh, about industrial education and Du Bois and Trotter having gone to Harvard and are really big on um, uh, liberal arts education. But I think that what is really crucial here is that this fight between Booker T. Washington, Monroe Trotter, and Debbie B. Du Bois was about the place of black people in American society. That's what the fight was over. Booker T. Washington was very non-threatening to white people because he said that black people needed to start at the bottom. They didn't need a liberal arts education. They needed to learn how to work with their hands. They need to be able to service white people by working on farms and, 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 and work of that nature. Whereas W.B. Du Bois and Monroe Trotter said, we know that black people should be the equals of white people in every way. Booker T. Washington had said that, forget about the franchise, forget about civil rights. Let's just try to get, get some economic rights first. Booker T, uh, uh, W.B. Du Bois and Monroe Trotter would have none of this. They said, we are full human beings. And so this notion of education then was that you cannot be a full human being if you're not highly educated in the, the liberal arts. And so that was the real fight, I think, between the two. I would just end this by saying that, by the way, whose vision has won out? And I would say that W.B. Du Bois and Monroe Trotter's view won out. Black people now would not think about, we just work with our hands. We don't care about the franchise. We don't care about being highly educated and so forth. 
And so that's what the fight was about. And I think that W.B. Du Bois and Monroe Trotter won out. I'd agree. <laughs> it's interesting, and I don't know if this is a spoiler alert for your film, Larry Hot, but uh, uh, Alden Morris, can you tell us what the, uh, the outgrowth that exists to this day is that came from the Niagara movement and proving in some ways that, that it, it won out, that Du Bois and Trotter won out? Well, yes, but, you know, it, it's, it was a long fight, and that fight continues today. I'm, I'm meaning and, more specifically uh, the NAACP. This is, it, it's, that is the, yes. the natural outgrowth of what became of the, Ni- the Niagara movement? Oh, the, 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 the NAACP is a direct outgrowth of the Niagara movement. It is fair to say there would never have been an NAACP had there not been a Niagara movement. The philosophy of uh, the legal approach, as well as protests and agitation all came out of the Niagara movement. Uh, uh, the black leaders in the uh, Niagara movement became leaders within the NAACP. And of course, you know, there was none no more important as the, one of the founders of the NAACP, and that is um, you know, W.B. Uh, du Bois. But I would say that what is interesting here is complex because the NAACP later on was going to push the legal approach and not the protest approach, whereas Du Bois was as much about the protest approach as the legal approach. So that Martin Luther King and SCLC and all those people in SNCC and all, they picked up on the protest side that, that the Niagara movement had advanced. And, uh, and the NAACP, NAACP often fought them and disagreed with them and so on. So I think that one of the things about the black struggle is that it has always been com- complex. It's always been conflictual. There's no sense of complete unity ever. Uh, and that was apparent very early between Booker T. Washington and the Niagara movement. By the way, you know that Booker T. Washington sent spies mm-hmm. to the Niagara movement. They tried to destroy it in every way. I think that one of the things that is so important about understanding Booker T. Washington is that he was a complex man. He did want black freedom, but he was narrow in terms of his views about how black people could get liberated. If you did not agree with his approach, that is that we needed industrial education and work with our hands, he would move to destroy you. He did not, he did not take, he did not embrace different points of view and that that is what the real fight was was about was was booker t washington going to control the trajectory of of black people in the united states and and of course wb du bois and monroe Monroe trotter said no finally let me also add that it is interesting there's two things interesting one is that monroe trotter pushed du bois to be uh, more uh, militant the other thing is is that early on the Niagara movement excluded women. And uh, then you had the fight, and Du Bois supported the fight to bring black women into the movement. And that, that is one of the reasons why I would argue that it did not endure longer because the women came in late. And black women, as you well know, have all of this genius, this experience, and this, 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 this ability to organize and so forth. So many of the, the same kinds of struggles we see now are still, uh, uh, <clears throat> they were initially embedded in the uh, Niagara movement. I'd also put forth that the Niagara movement was an all-black movement, and the NAACP, at least as, at its inception, was intentionally integrated. Well, what happened was, and we tell this in the film, is that there was a riot in Springfield, Illinois, 
around the time right. that the Niagara movement was starting to fall apart, 1908 or so. And this was Lincoln's hometown, and it was an embarrassment. And the white liberals, particularly with money, came together and said, if the Niagara movement is falling apart, we have to save some part of it. They approached W.B. Du Bois, and they got together. So the original NAACP was very much majority white, but the outlying groups came together, and they were mostly black, and there were a lot of women involved. So Alden is absolutely right. If it weren't for the women, I don't think we would have had not only the NAACP, but we wouldn't have the successful civil rights movement. That tracks. That is <laughs> filmmaker Larry Hodge. You don't disagree with that, right? <laughs> No, I don't disagree with that, sir. You know, the, um, the early NAACP's leadership, other than Du Bois, is completely controlled by uh, elite whites. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marcus Garvey once said that he went over to the NAACP when he came to the United States and he couldn't find anybody black there. And of course, he struggled with Du Bois. He said, I, including Du Bois, everybody <laughs> was white. And, uh, and one of the things that the Niagara movement has, uh, was just said is that it was, it was all black. And um, a lot of the conflicts that we saw early in the modern civil rights movement when you had an interracial movement, didn't exist uh, in the Niagara movement. In fact, there was uh, SNCC and uh, other more militant civil rights organizations during the 1960s came back to the view that we need to be all black because when whites get into the movement, they want to control, they want to determine what the goals are and so on and so forth. And so that's another important legacy of the Niagara movement is that it showed that black people could come together and build a movement for their own liberation without whites being in the leadership. That is Alden Morris, who is a professor of sociology and African-American studies at Northwestern University, who is featured in the Niagara movement, The Early Battle for Civil Rights, a documentary that will be screened for us here locally twice on Saturday at 33 Holly in Northampton for free. It is a film directed by Larry Hott, who lives in Florence. When can everybody see it on PBS, Larry? It's scheduled right now for October 24th this year, um, and um, it'll be a special, and I'm sure it'll be repeated as well. It'll also be on the uh, PBS website. Excellent. Larry Hot, Alden Morris, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, we'll speak with Shivaji Kumar about Global Accessibility Awareness Day, which may you may not be aware of, but is happening tomorrow. You're listening to The Fabulous 413. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. Global Accessibility Awareness Day, or GAAD, falls on May 18th this year which is tomorrow. The purpose is to get everyone talking, thinking, and learning about digital access and inclusion for the more than one billion people with disabilities and impairments. Joining us is Shivaji Kumar, who lives in Amherst, who is an accessibility manager for a U.S. bank and is leading a team to make the company's various financial services accessible to customers with different abilities. Shivaji previously worked for Amherst College and as its first digital accessibility specialist, where he led initiatives to make college curriculum and other digital services accessible for students, faculty, and staff. Shivaji's personal connection with disability is that he is blind and benefits from access to digital information by using screen readers and braille displays. Thank you so much for coming to the studio today, Shivaji. Thank you, Monty. (laughs) 
Global Accessibility Awareness Day. This is not something that I had ever heard about until uh, you reached out to us. Tell us where this idea came from and how long it's been going on. Well, you know, um, any big ideas, you know, how they come about. They they probably get cooked up in the garages and think of Googles and, <laughs> right? <laughs> so um, a bunch of folks who had uh, close relations with accessibility, either as consumers or producers in the back, uh, in the Bay Area, in California, they probably came up with this idea, probably over dinner or something else, whatever. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, I think about 11 years ago, they, they came up with this idea that why don't we start something or a day on which we all get to celebrate what this something called accessibility is and how it is applied in the digi digital space. So 11 years ago, uh, uh, those people just made a claim that we are going to celebrate the third Thursday of May every year as the Global Accessibility Awareness Day. And here we are. Tomorrow uh, is the third Thursday, um, 2023 um, in May, and we are going to celebrate that tomorrow. And there are workshops and classes and all sorts of things worldwide associated with this that are accessible generally to the public. Um, you're a JAWS certified trainer. What is JAWS? Ooh, that's a good question. I was going to put the JAWS music in there, but no, I didn't. No, <laughs> it's too no, confusing for people. On. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, um, so, you know, um, folks with disabilities use all kinds of assistive technologies to interact with uh, digital properties, right? Your uh, web pages, your mobile applications, or even these days you can talk about virtual reality, mm. right? So in order to interact with those um, digital properties, uh, there are these assistive technologies, and one of them is JAWS for Windows. It is a screen reader, and what that basically does is is to give me someone who ha who has vision impairment access to read the screen or anything that is appearing on the screen. So on my computers, or even on your iPhones or Android phones, you have um, screen readers. You just need to turn them on, and anything you touch on your iPhone or Android phone, it will speak it out. So you know a button to click here. So it will it will say whatever the button, the function of that button is, and it, it will say it out loud to me, and I would know what to do with it. Similarly, on my Windows computer, I have JAWS for Windows. It reads out everything. I code with that. Uh, you know HTML and CSS. These are coding languages. I also write emails using that uh, screen reader, and then I browse my web, um, I browse Google or whatever I need to search for. You'd mentioned to me in an email that you use Braille displays. Tell me about how that works. I can understand a reader on a phone, and I've used some of those things before. I can sometimes have the Washington Post article read to me uh, while I'm doing other things. But um, what about a Braille display? How does that manifest itself digitally for, for you? Oh, so um, Braille display is a is a device that you can hook up to your computer, laptop, whatever, and then 
whatever appears on the screen will also pop up on the device in the form of Braille. So you can you literally feel it, the, yes. the, the dots and things come up on something that you can feel. Yes. That's amazing. That's so cool. It really is yes. incredible. And kind of makes up for the, I think, slow disappearance of Braille, com- Braille keyboards because I remember having those for a long period of yeah. time with like standard QWERTY keyboards, but they had the Braille symbols on them also so right. you could just feel where where it was if you were learning. Um, what is A11Y? <laughs> Ooh, that's an, <laughs> that's an intriguing question. <laughs> it's, it's a secret code. <laughs> oh, okay. That's, you don't have to share your secrets about no, this totally no, fine. No. <laughs> so uh, A11Y is the word accessibility. If you think about it, between the word A and Y, accessibility, there are 11 alphabets. So A11Y. Cool. And yeah, that's looks, A11Y. It looks like the word ally in some ways, too, yeah. which is actually very cool. And um, we're speaking with Shivaji Kumar, who's from Amherst, and we're talking about Global Accessibility Awareness Day, which is tomorrow, and learning about some of the ways that global accessibility is becoming uh, more readily available. But I'm sure that there are some obstacles as well still, uh, Shivaji. Um, tell me about like federal and state documents, access to, to, to documents that people need to get through their everyday life. How accessible are, let's say, Commonwealth of Massachusetts documents or U.S. federal documents for someone? Yeah. So, um, you know, the regulations are pretty, um, they're all over the place. <laughs> and um, there is not clear guidance um, from the fe- either from the federal government or from various state governments. So given that kind of sort of free-for-all scenario in the regulatory space, there are lots of litigations. So people with disabilities can't read documents that we read from, uh, that we receive from either state or federal governments. You know, um, they don't have, so there are different ways in which people with disabilities access uh, documents. So your document should have proper heading structure. um, And if there are images in those documents, those images should have something called alt text. What that that is basically a short text embedded along with that image that will tell uh, a person with disability what that text is. Someone who cannot see it can hear it with their screen reader. Um, Then color contrast. Uh, You know, all of us and all of you may have, you know, said folks, particularly during pandemic, you know, you, we've, we've all been online and virtual conferences, but you couldn't see a Someone was screen sharing, what they were screen sharing wasn't clear to you, or the buttons there, you couldn't see clearly what the buttons were. And you said, hey, can you enlarge that? I could see it a bit better if you did that. That's because all those documents were not written with accessibility in mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we all struggle um, because of that. So let, let me finish up that thought. And given that kind of a situation, accessibility benefits all. Yes. yes. So, you know, it's not that um, it, is, it is benefiting only, um, you know, 61 million folks within the U.S. who have disability, but it benefits all of us. We, we all have need for that, and it, it enriches our user experience. 
do you have hope for accessibility getting better now with Biden's accessibility panel looking at issues of this nature and trying to improve them? Yes, to some extent. (laughs) (laughs) Is this the first of its kind? Was there an accessibility panel before the Biden administration um, has convened one? Um, I'm not sure about whether it is the first one or not. But, you know, there is a federal uh, agency called U.S. Access Board. It has been in existence and it has it is it is the agency that has been issuing regulations and have been teaching federal folks uh, how to make their properties accessible. But what's really exciting about Biden's agenda is that, you know, they have recently come out with the DOJ is is starting a rulemaking process for uh, Title II of the ADA. And what that basically means is that all state or local agencies will have to make their um, websites and documents accessible according to those guidelines. So that is sort of in process. Um, But the other landscape, the Title III of the ADA that relates to the corporates and private sectors, that is still in a limbo in the sense that there is no clear guidance. Um, Last February or March, um, the federal government did come out with some guidance. but, you know, in practice, those guidance have muddied the waters more than, than clarifying anything for digital accessibility. That is Shivaji Kumar from Amherst. Tomorrow is Global Accessibility Awareness Day. Thank you so much for making us aware of this day and uh, the work that you've been doing to uh, enlighten us all about why these things are important to all of us, regardless of our abilities. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow, I'm just wild about Saffron, and we'll talk with and hear the music of the all-female barbershop quartet, Saffron, who are mentoring students from the Springfield Conservatory of the Arts ahead of their national competition at Symphony Hall this weekend. And a double shot of poetry with former Northampton Poets Laureate, National Book Award winner Martina Spada, and National Jewish Book Award winner Rich Michelson. And a chat about the Rachel Rollins resignation with Congressman Jim McGovern. Our director is Tony, halfway through your staycation done. Our engineer is Betsy, you can have one there free Cordis. Our technical team is Bart, the old Barton Switch Rankin, Kara, only annoyed with a handful of people right now, Foster, and punk rude boy Dubay. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, The Beatles, Christopher Cross, Jonathan Richmond, and more. I'm Monty Belmonte. <laughs> I'm Smith. See you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.